and the, uh, the worship team will be reading Psalm 89. Psalm 89. I will sing of the Lord's great love forever. With my mouth I will make your faithfulness known through all generations. I will declare that your love stands firm forever, that you have established your faithfulness in heaven itself. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your line forever and make your throne firm through all generations. The heavens praise your wonders, Lord, your faithfulness too, in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies above can compare with the Lord, who is like the Lord among the heavenly beings? In the council of the holy ones, God is greatly feared. He is more awesome than all who surround him. Who is like you, Lord God Almighty? You, Lord, are mighty, and your faithfulness surrounds you. You rule over the surging sea. When its waves mount up, you still them. You crush Rahab like one of the slain. With your strong arm, you scattered your enemies. The heavens are yours, and yours also the earth. You founded the world and all that is in it. You created the north and the south. Tabor and Hermon sing for joy at your name. Your arm is endowed with power. Your hand is strong. Your right hand exalted. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Love and faithfulness go before you. Blessed are those who have learned to acclaim you, who walk in the light of your presence, Lord. They rejoice in your name all day long. They celebrate your righteousness. For you are their glory and strength, and by your favor you exalt our horn. Indeed, our shield belongs to the Lord, our King, to the Holy One of Israel. Once you spoke in a vision to your faithful people, and, and you said, I have bestowed strength on a warrior. I have raised up a young man from among the people. I have found David, my servant. With my, sac- with my sacred oil, I have anointed him. My hand will sustain him. Surely my arm will strengthen him. The enemy will not get the better of him. The wicked will not oppress him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down his adversaries. My faithful love will be with him, and through my name his horn will be exalted. I will set his hand over the sea, his right hand over the rivers. He will call out to me, You are my Father, my God, the Rock, my Savior. And I will appoint him to be my firstborn, the most exalted of the kings of the earth. I will maintain my love to him forever, and my covenant with him will never fail. I will establish his line forever, his throne as long as the heavens endure. If his sons forsake my law and do not follow my statutes, if they violate my decrees and fail to keep my commands, I will punish their sin with the rod, their iniquity with flogging. But I will not take my love from him, nor will I ever betray my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter what my lips have uttered. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, and I will not lie to David, that his line will continue forever, and his throne endure before me like the sun. It will be established forever like the moon, the faithful witness in the sky. 
but you have rejected, you have spurned, you have been very angry with your anointed one. You have renounced the covenant with your servant and have defiled his crown in the dust. You have broken through all his walls and reduced his strongholds to ruins. All who pass by have plundered him. He has become the scorn of his neighbors. You have exalted the right hand of his foes. You have made all his enemies rejoice. Indeed, you have turned back the edge of his sword and have not supported him in battle. You have put an end to his splendor and cast his throne to the ground. You have cut short the days of his youth. You have covered him with a mantle of shame. How long, Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how fleeting is my life. For what futility you have created all humanity. Who can live and not see death? Or who can escape the power of the grave? Lord, where is your former great love, which, you're in, which in your faithfulness you swore to David? Remember, Lord, how your servant has been mocked, how I bear in my heart the taunts of all the nations, the taunts with which your enemies, Lord, have mocked with which they have mocked every step of your anointed one. Praise be to the Lord forever. Amen and amen. So good morning. Uh, my name is Pastor Matt, and we are going to begin a, an Advent sermon series in this psalm, Psalm 89. We'll take several weeks to go through it. It's a lengthy psalm with lots of truths. I'd like to pray in just a second, just want to highlight a couple of things that some in your bulletin uh, share with you to obviously participate, encourage you to do so, but also to pray. I encourage you, if you're newer to the church and are getting to know uh, Cornerstone, I encourage you to come to a class today at 11 called the Next Steps class. We'll talk a little bit about the church and have a bite to eat together. Uh, tonight, I encourage you, we have a, a retirement home facility uh, about a half mile from us that we're going to go and sing carols. Uh, with them and to them tonight at 6, then we'll stay and we'll eat goodies with them and just uh, try to proclaim the Christ and have fellowship with them. And then next week on the 9th, if you're interested in possibly going on a missions trip with us to Ukraine, come to a meeting. And those of you who read the news might know that Ukraine and Russia are not playing nicely lately. And so I would be in prayer for uh, the Colliers who are missionaries we support there and just that country as a whole. Um, so let me pray for such things, and then we'll get into God's Word together. Father, we come to you because you are the good and beautiful God who has created this world and the universe. You sustain life by your very being. You sustain the cosmos as well as the cells in our body and um, blood pumps because of your gracious provision and uh, countries rise or fall at your command. And so we come to you because we uh, don't understand these things, can't control them, have no power over them, and yet you do. And so we pray for your mercy, we pray for you to turn hearts, we pray that you would hold back the hand of the evil one in such matters and we pray, God, that you would be near uh, to our own hearts, the most intimate of places, in our homes, in the relationships that we have at work and in our city. But then, Lord, you would also be uh, graciously at work in kingdoms and countries and kings and governors and presidents. 
And so, Lord, I do. I pray for the country of Ukraine and its leaders and for Russia and Vladimir Putin and the role that our country and the United Nations have right now in this uh, country at a political, military level. And then we think of Steve and Meg Collier who are just trying to minister on the ground and share the good news of Jesus Christ. And so we pray for just peace for this land. We pray for the opportunity for us to send a team to be an encouragement to Steve and Meg and the other uh, missionaries, a part of their agency in the Ukraine this coming summer. We pray that you would be in the grand details and the small details, uh, proving your mercy and your goodness. I think of also of Larry and Jill Couch as they've transitioned to a new country to serve in Greece, and just pray that you would bless the new labors there, as well as the ongoing ministry of Eric and Miriam Hesse in Berlin, Lord. Would there be fruit in their ministries and in their lives? Lord, we pray for the little the ministries of our church, even tonight as we go and we sing and proclaim these truths uh, that have been put in Christmas carols throughout many generations, Lord. Sometimes we can sing them and miss the words. Sometimes we can hear the tune and get caught up in nostalgia. But Lord, we pray that it would be the truths of who Christ is and what he has done and what he will yet to do that would capture our hearts and affections, that would lead us to worship and to belief. And that, Lord, it would build up saints and bring those into the kingdom who have not yet believed. Lord, we pray for just opportunities to share about Jesus with those who don't know him so that they might know that he is lovely and he is good and he is Savior. Lord, we pray for moms carrying children in our church family. Just pray that you would sustain them for the months that they have remaining. Lord, pray for healthy moms and healthy babies. We pray, though, even for the Sloan family, though, who are gathering and mourning over the loss of a newborn nephew today. And just pray that you would minister to them and the family. Lord, you alone can awaken the dead. You alone can open the eyes of the blind. You alone can equip me now to preach and teach in a way that is accurately, accurate and encouraging and helpful and true. And so just ask for your mercy now in our minutes together in your word. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. 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 So Shelly, a 15-year-old girl, uh, stands in the atrium of a home yelling at her father, you don't understand. I can't believe that you would do this. You don't understand, my friends. Why do you take away my phone? She turns the knob. She opens the door. She slams it, and she's on her way out. Now, these sorts of relational conflicts happen. We thought we knew a person. We thought we understood our parents. We thought we could trust them. But sometimes in a blink of an eye, all the relationships are broken. Families are divided. And this happens um, also just in our spiritual lives when it comes to God. Uh, we thought we knew him. We thought we understood him. But it seems that he has failed one too many times, he's absent too, too long, he allows too much sadness, too much sorrow, too much despair. And that's where Psalm 89 ends. I don't know if you caught this. Now it tells us in the, in the little, uh, small little writing that this is written by a man named Ethan the Ezraite, and he starts with praise, but he ends with a protest. He starts ex with expressions of joy, and he ends with petitions of confusion and despair. 
verse 46, Ethan cries out, How long, Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Verse 49, Lord, where is your former great love, which in your faithfulness you swore to David? So at this point, Ethan can be like Shelley. He could walk out. He could go looking for a better God, or he could reject God altogether. Some of you may know the name of Thomas Nagel. Thomas Nagel is a pretty prominent philosopher. He's, has, he's going to meet his maker soon, but he denies that there is meaning in the universe at all. He says there is no meaning at all, and I mean meaning with a capital M. And he says to pursue such a thing is a grave mistake. Well, then there's a different philosopher. His name is Jerry Coyne. He's from the University of Chicago. He, sh he chimes in with a similar statement. These are uh, Professor Coyne's words. He says, cosmology, the universe, cosmology does not give one iota of evidence for a purpose or for a god. Secularists see a universe without purpose and realize that we must forge our own purposes and ethics. It's interesting that Professor Coyne goes on to add, but although the universe is purposeless, our lives aren't. We make our own purposes, and they're real. Now notice what I think is a bit of a human dilemma that this professor exposes. He, 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 though he wants to deny purpose and meaning on one hand, almost in the same breath he turns around and says, but don't worry, you can, you can find your own, because... There's something in the human chest that says, I need this. I need something. What I think Psalm 89 provides, and hopefully we see this over the next several weeks, is a better path for those who have doubts. Uh, we don't have to walk out on God when it seems like he's walked out on us. We don't have to go out and create our own meaning and purposes for life. What we have in Psalm 89 is Ethan has, has penned a piece of poetry directed to God, and it has been collected into the book of Psalms. It's always important to remember the book of Psalms is a collection of poems and songs. Uh, poems do not just happen in a moment. Poems come after deep contemplation. They get set to meter. People are straining for words and metaphors to capture the confusion in their soul. 150 of these psalms have been collected into God's Word. This is, these have been preserved so that we have expression for the angst in our hearts. That this is in God's Word, it, it tells us one thing too, is that this is a template for in which we can pray. This is, this is how you can pray when, you have, when you've run out of your own words. And psalms come in all shapes and sizes. Some psalms are praise from beginning to end. They are just blown away with the creator, redeeming, majestic God. Some psalms are deep confessions of sin before God and pleading for his mercy and forgiveness. Some psalms begin with questions and protests and anger, and end with praise. Psalm 89 starts with praise, but ends with protest. 
Even this, the very last line that you find in an English translation where it says, praise be the Lord forever, amen and amen, is actually not the end to this psalm. It's the end to the third book of the psalms. Right? So there are, three, there are five books in the psalms that are divided up. This is the, it's like the transition piece to the new book. This psalm actually ends with 51. The taunts with which your enemies, uh, that there are en- the enemies are taunting. He's crying out to the Lord. They're mocking every step of the Lord's anointed, the, the Lord's Messiah. So this is how psalm ends. Now, what I want you to know then, for you, this is a way you can pray. This is, this is a gift for you. You might not always pray this way, but this is a way, a good way, in which we can pray. Uh, just some things that we know and don't know. Uh, we know that a man named Ethan wrote this. We're not 100% sure which Ethan wrote this. Uh, there was an Ethan around 900, 950 B.C. who was a sage and advisor of King Solomon, probably lived into uh, the reign of Solomon's son Rehoboam. And this could be Ethan watching the kingdom get divided under the reign of King Rehoboam, watching the kingdom get attacked by a man named King Shishak, watching the people get destroyed. Could be that Ethan. This could be an Ethan after the fall of Jerusalem in the 6th century, after 586 B.C., reflecting on not the nation divided, but the nation destroyed by Babylon. The king killed. The princes killed. Regardless of which horrific time in the history of Israel this is, we know that Ethan is crying out, where is your faithfulness, God? Where are you? What I want to look at primarily in the first third of the psalm today is, I think, a good um, reminder, and it would be this. Remember God's goodness before you question his whereabouts. Remember God's goodness before you question his whereabouts. I want to use verse 2 as kind of a key sentence for these first 14 to 18 verses. He says, I will declare that your love stands firm forever, that you have established your faithfulness in heaven itself. Verse 2 is a very bold thing to say in the midst of personal and national disaster. Battles are being lost, kings are being killed, nation is being ripped apart, and Ethan says, I will declare that your love stands firm forever, that you have established your faithfulness in heaven itself. For some, Ethan sounds like a sap. He's maybe breathing out hallmark sentiments when horror is everywhere around. But I don't think these are hallmark sentiments if we know the depth of the words that he's using and the faith that is being expressed. Because love to God is not the fickle emotion of a girl who likes one boy on Tuesday and a different boy on Saturday. Faithfulness is not God pinky swearing with one hand but crossing his fingers with the other. Remember God's goodness before you question his whereabouts. What do I mean by God's goodness? Well, two major terms are used. The first one is in the first part of the verse where he says, I will declare that your love 
stand firm forever. Love. Many of you know that one of the major words in the Old Testament, this word for love, is the word hesed. The hesed love of God is his faithful covenant love for his people. This is a love, when you think about a covenant love, this is the love of one Marine to another that says, I will not leave another soldier behind. That kind of love. His goodness goes on in the second part of the verse where he says, you have established your faithfulness in heaven itself. Faithfulness is the idea of stability and reliability. It's about permanence. Grandma's are faithful. The sun rising every morning is marked by faithfulness, and this is God's faithfulness. So despite the ugly situation, Ethan is saying God is faithful. We can trust him. In fact, in the first 14 verses, there are four different occasions where he mentions this word faithfulness, and a couple of those times is connected to this word love or hesed. Verse 1, I will sing of the Lord's great love forever, With my mouth, I will make your faithfulness known through all generations. Jump to five. The heavens, praise your wonders, Lord, your faithfulness too in the assembly of the holy ones. Verse eight. Who is like you, Lord God Almighty? You, Lord, are mighty in your faithfulness. It surrounds you. Verse 14. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of, of your throne, love and faithfulness go before you. So how can Ethan still be praising God in the midst of turmoil? I appreciate what one writer said. He said the reason he can pray, the reason he can still rejoice, quote, he sings in the winter because he is sure of the summer. He sings in the winter because he is sure of the summer, but why such surety? Why such assurance? And the true, one of the major truths in the Bible is God does not change. God does not change. My circumstances change, but the God behind them does not. The theological word for God's unchanging nature is immutability. Mutable things change. The teenage mutant ninja turtles, they changed. But immutability means God never changes. And God's immutability is one of our greatest hopes. God does not change. This means God's love for us does not change. His almighty power does not go out. His perfect kindness and justice are always held together in perfect harmony. God the Father does not change. God the Son does not change. God the Holy Spirit does not change. When one of the writer, the writer of Hebrews, a New Testament book, gets toward the end, he says in verse 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And even more so for us, right? Ethan only knew part of the story. He only knew the story of God's making, fulfilling his promises to Abraham and Isaac to Jacob. Ethan only knew of God's deliverance of Israel out of Egypt and bringing them into the promised land. Ethan only knew of the promises that had been made to King David. But we know the rest of the story. What Ethan says in the winter is answered in the little town of Bethlehem. Where is God's king? 
He is born and placed in a manger. Where is our hope? It's there on a Roman cross as the Messiah dies for his people. Uh, Some in this church are getting ready to face a long-term illness. Some are already in the thick of it. There's daily pain and treatments coming or already begun. God is loving. God is faithful. Remember God's goodness before you question his whereabouts. How do we remember his goodness? So what does that mean? What does it mean to remember his goodness? What the psalmist shows here is remember first what he has done previously. Remember what God has done previously. Look at verses 9 and 10. He writes, You, God, you rule over the raging, over the surging sea. When its waves mount up, you still them. You crushed Rahab like one of the slain. With your strong arm, you scattered your enemies. Verses 9 and 10 is actually talking about God's deliverance of the people of Israel out of the bondage of Egypt. Rahab is not uh, the Rahab that's mentioned in the book of Joshua. Rahab is a mythical sea monster that, recognize, that represents Israel, or excuse me, represents Egypt. This is, you know, like the bald eagle represents the United States. Rahab, this mythical sea monster, is Egyptian's god. And where did that god go? Crushed when the waters ceased to part and that monster was destroyed. He, God stilled the waters for the Hebrew people to walk through safely. But once they were safe, the enemy was crushed. Remember God's redemption and his power. Verses 3 and 4 say, remember God's promises. Verse 3 and 4, Ethan remembers what God had said. You said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. Now, if this is the Ethan in the 900s, this promise was only made about 50, 75 years previously. And Ethan would have known God sometimes takes a bit of time to answer his promises. He called Abraham and made Abraham and Sarah wait for a baby to come well after menopause. God promised to deliver Israel out of Egypt, and it, still, it took 400 years. So I think it, Ethan is a man of faith and says, hey, he just made these promises to David 75 years. We've got a while to wait, but he'll be faithful because David is his chosen one. Verse 4, God had said, I will establish your line forever and make your throne firm through all generations. So to look at verse 11, what is he remembering? He's remembering that about God, the heavens are yours and yours also the earth, you founded the world and all that is in it. And so now he's remembering this creative God, this powerful, almighty God that creates the heavens, creates the earth. He, he founded continents, right? And he put oceans where they're supposed to be. And he, he carved out land so that the rivers can flow. And this is the God that he is just, he's struck by. And so when you're facing crisis, you can walk out or you can lean in. You can walk out or you can lean in. We can walk out the door and look for a better God or we can be like Thomas Nagel and reject any God. Or you can lean in. I think every parent 
fear is the day where they're going to have that big moment with their kid. And, and they'll happen. If you haven't happened yet, kids, it will happen. But every parent says, I want this conversation not outside the door, but at the kitchen table. Let's sit down. Let's remember. It's amazing when I was 17 years of age and my mom or dad did something, I forgot the 16 to 17 years where they fed me and paid for everything, right? These people who hated me and were cruel, yeah, they did give me a bedroom, right? I mean, but that's the thing. There's this moment where with our relationship with God, all the past gets forgotten. All of his previous acts and mercy has been forgotten, and now he's this cruel tyrant of a person who clearly can't listen or heal or work. And so rather than walk out, lean in, sit down with God at the kitchen table, which is what I think Ethan is doing here. He's at the kitchen table with God, and he's, I praise you. You're a promising God. You're a creative God. You're a redeeming God. He's going to get to the questions. But before he questions God, before he rejects God, he's, I'm remembering your goodness. Many of you know John Newton by name as the writer of the hymn Amazing Grace. Uh, he also wrote another, maybe less famous poem called These Inward Trials. Let me read this poem to you and just make some connections. John Newton writes, I asked the Lord that I might grow. In faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. I hope that in some favored hour at once he'd answer my request and by his love's constraineth power, subdue my sins and give me rest. That's what he wanted. I want you, God, and I want rest. Next stanza. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more, with his own hand, he seemed intent to aggravate my woe, crossed all the fair designs I schemed, blasted my gourds. He laid me low. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied. I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayst find thy all in me. Now, one of the beautiful things about this poem in Psalm 89 is that both writers start and end with their hearts reaching out to God. They want God. They want God deeply amid pain and praise, poetry and protest. These souls know that there's only hope in the Lord God, in his character and in his goodness. And so they're, they're straining for God. And I think Newton is right. <laughs> He's, God's going to answer that prayer. It's just never going to be in the path that you would expect. But in the end, he's going to give you the best thing that he can give you, and that is him self. Remember God's goodness before you question his whereabouts. Now, clearly, 
Ethan is not seeing God in Israel. He's not, <laughs> where are you, God? So God is seeming very absent in the world. But in faith, look back at verse 2, Ethan does know where God is. His God is in heaven. Verse 2, I will declare that your love stands firm forever, that you have established your faithfulness in heaven itself. Now to a Jewish person, and really to a biblical person, Heaven is not some cloudy, ethereal existence. That is not where heaven is. Heaven was a real and is a real, stable, and secure dwelling of God in his heavenly court. Sometimes it was called Zion or the mountain Zion. This is the abode in which the eternal being of immense power dwelt. So get your mind around the most impressive, sturdy, glorious, unconquerable edifice you've ever imagined, and you're not even close. God is in heaven. In verses 5 through 7, we hear a little bit more about what's going on in heaven. Well, (laughs) verse 5, the heavens, they praise your wonders, Lord, your faithfulness too in the assembly of the holy ones. Now in this case, the assembly of the holy ones, the heavens, these are the heavenly glorious creatures that surround the glorious king of kings and lord of lords. This is the seraphim and the cherubim which do not look like Cupid. Whenever a human person came across an angelic being, they were scared and they felt like they should bow down and worship. But these angels, these servants of God says, oh no, do not bow before me. We worship God. Verse 6, for who in the skies can compare with the Lord? Who is like the Lord among the heavenly beings? In the council of the holy ones, God is greatly feared. He is more awesome than all who surround him. These glorious beings are struck in wonder of God. Now, many of us know or we read these stories about you know, famous athletes or maybe politicians that they, they get to the point where they think that they're above the law you know, and they start doing horrific things because they just feel like they're gods, small g. The real gods, small g, these glorious heavenly beings, they do not get a big head. They worship They still worship the one true God. They're happy to be under his authority and power and reign, and they worship him. They don't, they they do nothing but just honor him and serve him and obey him because he is the God who created the heavens, who reigns in the heavens, who is in heaven. This is where God dwells. When King Solomon built one of the most beautiful buildings in the history of the world, the temple, he says this in 1 Kings 8, 27, but will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you, how much less this temple I have built. And at the end of the Apostle Paul's letter to Timothy, his first letter, chapter 6, he writes this, chapter 6, verses 15 and 16, God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal, 
and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honor and might forever. Amen. So why do God's whereabouts matter? Why do his whereabouts matter? It simply means he will do things you and I will never understand. It's very tempting for the guy at the end of the assembly line to question the CEO of his Fortune 500 company, but there's usually a good reason the CEO gets to make the final call. It's very tempting to doubt a doctor's prescription, especially if things seem to get worse before they get better. But they are the ones who see thousands of patients a year. They are the ones who spent a decade studying the human body. They are the ones who made an oath to do no harm. It is very tempting for a child to see their parents' discipline as cruelty. But nine times out of ten, the parent is acting in love and wisdom for the betterment of their child. How much more so the father who is in heaven? When we were praying for the service this morning, someone reminded me of Isaiah 55, verse 9. As the heavens are higher than the earth, God says, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. This is the God who is in heaven. A pastor recently retired, Timothy Keller, he, uh, out in New York City, he once said this. When we say... I can't believe in a God who would X. I can't believe in a God who would do whatever is troubling you the most. When we say I can't believe in a God who would, we're saying we don't really want a God beyond our comprehension. We want a God that we understand. We want a God who uh, is under our authority and under our wisdom and acting according to our whims and dictates and sense of justice and fairness. But the more I've reflected on this psalm this week, I've come to believe this. The problem with a God who you can understand is he cannot face the problems you'll never understand. The problem with a God who you can understand is he cannot face the problems you'll never understand. We need a God bigger than cancer's complexities. We need a God wiser than humanity's duplicities. Thomas Nagel says there is no meaning. None. But to know that, and to say that, at some level, Thomas Nagel is saying he knows all things that could be possibly known, and he is giving a conclusion of godlike proportions. Now, he's a smart man. 20 times smarter than me, but I don't think he can know. Isn't it more humble and also more human to confess there is meaning, but it may be beyond you and me? Some of the very things that we dislike the most about God, that we can't understand him, I believe is our only hope. A God above us, in heaven, with heavenly abilities and intentions, he alone can save us. This is why I believe many people in the first century and still today, they don't understand Jesus. Because when he showed up, he was not the God that people were expecting, and he wasn't the God that most people wanted. 
They wanted a different God. They, for the Jews, they wanted the Roman army, Roman proconsul crushing God. That's what they wanted. And when Jesus came loving women who were bleeding, going to demon-possessed people that looked crazy, and receiving them into his fellowship, when he went to the undereducated and backwood folks of Galilee and began his ministry there, people said, well, what good comes out of that land? Jesus was willing to associate with people of ill repute. He stood against political and religious powers. He did not try to gain power, and yet he walked everywhere. He went as if he had all the power in the world. But in all this, Jesus is the answer to Ethan's questions, where is God? How will our suffering end? But even, to the, even the answers to the questions are shocking. God is on a cross. Suffering ends because the Messiah suffers. The sins of God's people can be removed because the Son has died as our substitute. It was foretold this way by the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 53, 4 through 6 say this, surely, surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Years ago, um, 17th century, when the Church of England broke away from Roman Catholicism, they constructed a little book called the Book of Common Prayer. It's a wonderful little book, still used today. And one of the things that the Book of Common Prayer does is it takes the psalms and takes scriptures and it assigns them to various days of the year. And with great wisdom, in the Book of Common Prayer, Psalm 89 is the Christmas psalm. Because Christmas is the answer to Ethan's questions. God is coming. He is love endures forever. His faithfulness is in heaven. Christmas is the answer to Psalm 89. Christmas is the answer to most of our questions. Not Christmas in and of itself, but Christmas tied to Good Friday and Christmas tied to Resurrection Sunday and Resurrection Sunday attached to the ascending of the Lord to sit at the right hand of the Father and the coming of the Son of Man at the end to bring all of the enemies to naught. Because the beautiful thing about Jesus is he actually killed the worst enemies. The sin in your heart and mine. Satan who prowls. And that's why we worship him. Until then, may the words at the end of John Newton's psalm be pointing us to the Christ who can set us free. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayst find thy all in me. Let's pray and then take the supper. Father God, we worship you because um, what we do understand and what we do see and what we do celebrate, it's amazing. 
What we do grasp about the manger and the cross and your son and him dying for our sins, it is remarkable. And yet, Lord, like Ethan, we confess we don't get a lot. We don't understand. You seem so far away at times. I pray, Lord, to have the faith of Ethan that I would just keep coming back to you, sit down with you, lean in with you, have a kitchen table conversation with you to remember what you have done, remember what you have promised, remember what you are capable of, and ultimately to remember the cross. In Christ's name, amen.